All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you that we have this time to gather today for worship as a body of believers. And I thank you that we have this time at the beginning of the day to consider your infinitude. And I pray that this time would um, assist us as we go forward and uh, to the worship hour and that we would consider all of your attributes and how you are infinite in all of them. I pray that uh, this would motivate us to give you the right praise and glory and honor for who you are because knowing that you are infinite shows us how insignificant everything else is compared to you and how it is our duty and our privilege to come before you, to speak to you, to sing to you, and to hear from you. I pray that this would be uh, something that would motivate us and give us uh, a great deal of consideration. Father, I pray that uh, we would just be uh, in the right uh, frame of mind today as we worship you and do so in spirit and in truth in Jesus name amen all right so um i'm really thankful for uh sorry yes uh, uh there are some different versions but this is the version we're using it is the seventh question but uh yes do, do, do point out, because some copies of this catechism, they add that first question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism that isn't actually in the Baptist Catechism. Is that the case with yours? Is what is the chief end of man one of the early? What is chief end of man is the second question. Yeah. See, that's not in the Baptist Catechism, the, most of the versions of it. So that would be why. But I appreciate you, you know, note any issues if you do see them. Um, yeah, I'm really thankful last week that we got that uh, presentation from from Ryan about his uh, mission work. Um, so it's, but it's been two weeks since we started this series on the being of God uh, from the, the second section, questions seven to nine in our catechism. Uh, last week, or two weeks ago, we went to, uh, we looked through all of the questions we read uh, and answered them. Uh, as I said, then going forward, we'll just—I'll uh, ask, and y'all can reply with the uh, question and answer, just relevant to the uh, to the particular lesson that we're having today. So um, today we're still in question seven, and we'll spend the most time in that one because it's the one that's got the most uh, most detail and covers the most ground. So I'll ask the question, and if y'all would please uh, respond to it. Um, what is God? God is the Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All right, so two weeks ago, we covered the first portion of the answer, which says that God is a spirit. And so we considered the definition of the word spirit, and a spirit is an immaterial being. We also considered um, 
some of the basic attributes of God as a spirit, namely divine simplicity and impassibility, because while those are not mentioned uh, here in the catechism, um, they are mentioned in the corresponding chapter in our Confession of Faith, chapter 2, um, and they are really important for kind of understanding God's attributes in general. Um, so this morning we'll move on to the next thing that our catechism question says, the attribute that God is infinite or the infinitude of God. Um, now, if you take note of the phrasing of the answer to our question and the punctuation of it, you'll see that the terms infinite, eternal, and unchangeable are presented as descriptions of his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So what you have here is three of God's incommunicable attributes, which are said to be true of God in his being, as well as in the communicable attributes that are listed, wisdom, and so on. And now, if you weren't here two weeks ago, uh, in that lesson, we did cover the distinction between communicable and incommunicable attributes. So infinity, uh, in eternity, and unchangeableness are called incommunicable attributes because God alone has those attributes and no creature has so much as a semblance of those. On the other hand, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are called communicable attributes because creatures can possess those things to some degree, although God alone is perfect, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in them. God is infinite in all of his attributes, but if we notice that before the listing of the communicable attributes in the uh, catechism answer, it says that God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. That is to say that he is um, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable without qualification, not only in certain attributes. And so for today and for the next lesson or two, when we look at the eternity and the unchangeableness of God, we're going to consider those relative to his being. And then we'll look at those other, the communicable attributes, wisdom and so on afterwards. So God being infinite in his being refers to his omnipresence, which is that he is everywhere. Um, our confession uses uh, a different word. It uses the word immense. So God being infinite in his being is the same thing as him being omnipresent and immense. Those are all different terms for the same thing. Now, Thomas Watson, who I uh, relied upon heavily in this study because he preached through the shorter catechism, also adds the knowledge of God under this heading of God's um, infinity because God's knowledge as well as his essence is infinite. And so we're going to look at the uh, infinity of God's essence as well as the infinity of his knowledge in today's lesson. So there are a lot of passages of scripture which speak of God's infinitude. Um, in 1 Kings 8.27, when Solomon is praying his prayer of dedication for the temple, he says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. So God fills the heavens and the earth, and there isn't any place where he is not present. 
And this is true of his very being, his essence, and not only his influence. Um, something that uh, Watson mentions um, and some another author that I, I looked at, although I can't remember which one, uh, is that uh, Conrad Vorstius, who was one of the uh, Armenian remonstrants, as well as a group called the Socinians, who were a, a heretical group that, that commonly uh, clashed with the reformers back in the 16th and 17th centuries, they argued that God's virtue and influence are everywhere, but not that his being was everywhere. Um, and the, the analogy that Vorstius used was of the sun, how the sun is you know, localized in one place, but the light and heat from it reaches into far distant places, you know, far from where the sun actually is. Uh, but this is not what we mean when we say that God is infinite. It's not just that he radiates his power and influence everywhere. He actually is everywhere. Um, Jeremiah twenty three twenty four says, Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Um, now, some people have uh, pointed out that Habakkuk one thirteen says that uh, God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And so if God is everywhere, then that means that God occupies the same space as creatures and things which are corrupt and evil. Even the very hearts of wicked sinners and even hell itself. Um, but... I think we can reply to that uh, and answer that objection by saying that the infinite power of God overcomes anything else that could uh, seek to mingle corruption with him. And uh, so that makes sure that he remains pure no matter where his presence is, even where he is present in impure places. Um, And so... God being infinite, it means that he immediately governs all things. So he's not like a human king who needs officers and deputies uh, to carry out his governance. He doesn't need messengers to keep him up to date on what's going on in his kingdom. He's everywhere all at once, and he manages all things directly according to his own will and by his own power. And this also distinguishes God from the gods of the pagans. Uh, apart from the fact that he's real and they're not, because they are the inventions of the minds of men, they're limited in many ways, um, even in the minds of those who believe in them. So there's an example of this in 1 Kings twenty twenty three, It says, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are the gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we will be stronger than they. So Syrians failed to understand that there is one infinite God who is over all things. For pagans, all gods have their certain jurisdictions and they have advantages and disadvantages against other gods depending on the situation. Uh, The human, the natural mind cannot grasp infinity. And so the natural mind, when it invents gods, just doesn't understand uh, infinite, uh, that God is infinite, that they don't, um, so they always invent finite, limited gods. Um, but there is one God who is infinite. 
And by definition, there cannot be two infinite beings because there's only one infinity. And so there can only be one being that is infinite. Um, And that infinite being cannot be anything other than the one infinite being, which is God. Um, I mean, if, if you were to try to view their being as as two infinite beings, they would necessarily not be able to be distinguished uh, from one another because all of them would be all of the same things. Um, So what this shows us is how great is the God that we serve. And so we should join David then um, in 1 Chronicles 29, uh, 11 to 13, in praising God for his infinite majesty, he says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So God's infinitude shows us how insignificant everything else is in comparison to him. Isaiah forty fifteen says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And so when we read one of our later catechism questions, question 29, which asks, How doth Christ execute the office of a king? And answers, Christ executed the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. We can be confident that he can and will do all of those things. Excuse me. Sorry. Um, So if God is infinite, then that means that we will never be able to exhaust his blessings. In Psalm 73, 26, the psalmist Asaph says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And God can be the portion forever for each and every one of us because of his infinitude. Ephesians three nineteen, Paul prays for the saints in Ephesus that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the love of Christ and the fullness of God are infinite and all the saints will share in them fully and perfectly without any lack. We'll never have to uh, compete for his attention and affection because he's infinite. He can bestow all of those things on all of us at the same time completely. We will never uh, get our fill of him. We will never, uh, we'll never run him dry because he's infinite in everything. Now, on the other hand, the infinitude of God is dreadful news for wicked men because they'll never be able to hide their wickedness from him. David says in uh, Psalm 21, 8, your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. And then in uh, Psalm 139, 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? God is in all places and 
He sees all things, and so there's no place that the wicked can go to hide from him. Um, Now, we do have passages in Scripture that speak of people being away from the presence of God. Genesis 4.16 says that Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And does this mean that God was not present in the land of Nod? And then Jeremiah 52.3 says, For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. So does this mean that God was no longer present in the land of Judah? No, but there is a special presence of God with which he blesses those who are faithful to him and that is enjoyed by those who are his people, but that um, are not enjoyed by those who are not his people and which he may even withdraw from from some people like uh you know Cain in some sense did walk with God even though he was uh, unfaithful but after he uh, showed his unfaithfulness God cast him away and the same is true of the people of Judah Ezekiel 10 describes the glory of God leaving the temple This doesn't mean that God's essence was not present in the temple any longer, but it was that special glorious presence that God has with his people that was withdrawn in that time. And so because God is everywhere, we are able to have fellowship with him no matter where we are. Genesis 5.21 says that Enoch walked with God. Now, that doesn't mean that God was locally present with Enoch in a way that would exclude him from being present everywhere else. But Enoch, because he was a faithful man, he walked with God and he had fellowship with God. And all of us, we can have fellowship with God no matter where we are, all of us at the same time. And that's because he dwells in the hearts of all of his people. 1 John 1, 3 says, Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus, uh, with the Son, Jesus Christ. And Scripture speaks in several places about God dwelling in us. Romans 8, 9-11 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now this is a wonderful statement on the Trinity, and we will come back to this passage uh, when we get to question nine. But... Here, I mean, we can see that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwells in all of us who believe the gospel. Um, The triune God is infinite, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, and he is therefore able to dwell in all of us simultaneously. We don't even have the capacity to fully conceive of this concept of infinity, We can define it to a certain degree. We know that it's a a concept that exists, but it's still a mystery to us. And so we can never fully comprehend God. 
any way that we try to imagine him will fail to truly depict who he is. And this is one of the reasons why God prohibits us from making images of him. Because any image that we make must necessarily be finite. And if we say that an image represents God, it therefore cannot be anything other than a sorry misrepresentation. And also, no amount of the study of the book of nature or of scripture will ever enable us to know everything there is that is true about God. It's just beyond our human capacity. In Job 11.7, Job's friend Zophar says, Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Now, while Zophar does get quite a lot of things wrong, he has one thing right, and that is that we're not able to search out all that there is about God. Only God knows everything that there is to know about God, and that will always be the case. Even in eternity, we will never stop learning more things about God, but we will never come to a complete knowledge of him. Um, David also says in Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. We can affirm these things, but... Um, we will never be able to fully search him out. And so uh, Thomas Watson says, uh, adore what you cannot fathom. And I think that's great advice and great instruction. Don't try to go beyond what God has revealed to us in your efforts to know him. You know, continue contemplating and growing an understanding of what he has revealed, both in nature and in scripture and praise him for that which he has revealed about himself. But if we, uh, in our attempts to understand him, go beyond what he's revealed, it will inevitably result in us limiting him and thus misrepresenting him. He is not bound by our reason. So while we can contemplate his glory as far as he has revealed himself to us, and we should praise him for that, we should not try to go farther than that. Now, as I mentioned earlier, um, Watson includes under this heading of God's infinitude, God's knowledge. And that's because God's infinity is true of his essence as well as his knowledge. And so we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning considering the knowledge of God. In 1 Samuel 2, 3, as Hannah is praying, she says, The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. In Psalm 147, 5, the psalmist says, Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. God searches and knows all the hearts of men. Revelation 2, 23 says, I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Psalm 139.4 says, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Isaiah 66.18, I know their works and their thoughts. Thus we cannot hide even our inner thoughts from God. We cannot be uh, merely outward Christians and then expect to have favor with God. And God's knowledge also is without error. He can never be mistaken about anything. 
Uh, He knows all things, including those which have not happened yet. And it's not because he looked down the corridors of time and perceived things that would happen. Rather, it's because he decreed them in the act of creation. Uh, It's true also to say that God knows all all, uh, future contingencies as well as future actual events, meaning he knows if he had done something different than he actually did, what would follow from that. But this is because he has decreed those cause and effects relationships and ordered all things to proceed in a certain way. And it's important that we're clear on this, that God has decreed the cause and effect relationships that create and establish contingencies themselves. He was not, as Molinus would say, bound in making his decree by orders of cause and effect that existed prior to his decree. So like, I don't know if any of you have looked at Molinism. I'm sure a few of you are somewhat familiar with it. But what they say is God said, okay, I want to have a certain outcome and therefore I will set motions, uh, set events in motion that will, according to some system of cause and effect, lead to that outcome that I desire. But no, that's not what uh, God's knowledge is. God actually decreed everything to happen in its order and he decreed how things would how how actions would lead to other actions i won't go farther on that because the decree of god is something that's going to be covered in the next set of catechism questions i think is it dirk that's teaching on those i believe so don't i don't remember but uh so i'm I'm, everything about the decree of god uh, we'll be looking at later But uh, God knows all things because he has decreed them as they will happen. Um, But just as in the case of the scripture passages that we considered before that would seem to suggest a limited presence of God, there are other passages which uh, might appear to some people to suggest a finite knowledge of God. So. Probably the the best known example of this is Genesis 18.21 when God says, I will go down to see, uh, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. It's not the case here that God did not already know everything that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Rather, God saw fit to manifest his presence visibly in that place so that it would be apparent to all that he had witnessed their wickedness for himself and so had judged them fairly and justly. Um, And so uh, because God is infinite in knowledge, what that means, therefore, is that hypocrisy is foolish and futile. So hypocrites might be viewed as righteous before men, but God sees the secret sins of the hypocrites. Um, Psalm ten eleven says of the wicked man, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Now, according to Psalm 73, 11, even the people of Israel had come to say, how can God know is their knowledge in the most high? So they had in their own belief, failed to understand the infinitude of God's knowledge. And so they had limited God in their minds and thought that he was not paying attention to their wickedness. 
But the infinite knowledge of God should steer us away from sin. Um, We may go to great lengths to hide our wrongdoings from other people, and we might succeed in that. And also the fear of getting caught and the fear of the consequences of that prevents a great deal of sin from happening. Um, But since we know that we can't hide anything from God, we should be as honorable behind closed doors as we are in public. Remember, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 1, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Since God's knowledge is infinite, we should be genuine about ourselves and not try to present ourselves as something other than we are. And we should seek to live honorable lives all the time, regardless of whether anyone can see us, because we know that God can see us and he knows all things. He even knows the secret thoughts in our hearts. Uh, But the infinite knowledge of God is a comfort to believers. God knows our faith. He knows all of our good thoughts about him. And he knows our desire for righteousness and for fellowship with him. So even when we look at ourselves and we see so much sin in our lives and in our hearts that might uh, afflict our assurance, we can be confident that God knows his children and we can be knows us as his children and we can be comforted in that. He also knows all the wrongs done to us by our, by our enemies and he will avenge us. Remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to uh, Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when Saul responded, who are you, Lord? Jesus replied, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So attacks on God's people are attacks on God himself. And he knows about all of them. And he will bring justice against all of our enemies. And so that should be a great comfort to us. It should uh, drive us to... Be honest in everything that we do and righteous in everything that we do, not only in public, but also to um, put away even sinful thoughts from our minds, put away even evil desires from our hearts um, so that we can be obedient to him, not only outwardly, but also inwardly. We should be able to trust that he is ordering and governing all things immediately by his power, by his will, uh, because he is everywhere and he is seeing everything. And so when we go in a little while to uh, worship God together as a church, let's um, be sincere in our worship and know that we are in his presence that he is uh, hearing the praises that we are singing to him, he is hearing our prayers, that he is speaking to us through the word preached. And um, let's worship him in, in spirit and in truth and do so in a manner that is honoring and glorifying to him. And remember that he sees us, if we are in him as his children, he loves us and he cares for us. And he has forgiven us of all of our sins. Um, Does anyone have any comments, questions about what we've considered today? Uh, This may be for Eric, but 
So if he's decreed everything, why would there be contingencies? Um, that's just referring to like uh, cause and effect relationships. I mean, he's he's determined uh, an order, um, a set of laws that govern the universe. Um, right. Well, yeah. I think that he said that he determined everything, but then he also knows any of the contingencies. But there, if he's already determined it, there would there shouldn't be any contingencies, should there? Um. Okay. So. Like, you know, if, if just for yourself, if you, you know that if you take one action, it will have one result. If you take another action, it will have another result. Now, God has decreed whichever one you will take, but he still, what all we're saying is he knows what would have happened, you know, if you'd done the other thing. So, you know, contingencies are, are part of the law of nature that God has, has decreed and laid out, um, yeah, I think that's, that's something that I'm sure will be covered more in the next section. Better way to say, maybe not contingency, but possibility. Mm-hmm. Like, he knows all possibilities. Uh, mm-hmm. He has decreed everything down to. So, in a certain sense, there is no point of contingencies, mm-hmm. but there are all possibilities. Yeah. Um, but he has decreed all those, and so all those are set. Yeah, yeah. Possibilities may be a better uh, term for, I guess, modern discussions of this. Contingencies, the term you tend to find in older writings. So when we start asking about the words that we use, and it goes, wait a minute, till 
<laughs> Hold on. So we have to always go back to those three factors and start plugging those things back in when we start talking about God. He's perfect. Well, how does that fit with what we just said? By the way, our brain doesn't make that register right. Uh, you know, and it, it, whenever doing, um, I don't know how many of you use that Logos software. After years of saying <laughs> I don't need it, I finally, because I'm starting my doctorate, I finally sat down and bought it. Shit, about a V8 here. <laughs> oh my goodness. Because <laughs> you just do a word like that and it comes, gives you hundreds and hundreds of resources. Mm -hmm. um, and that happens to be one of the words I'm using mm -hmm. uh, for apologetics. You know, came up the other day and I was like, oh wow, duh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so if you just kind of remember those three things and plug in those simple things and come back to them when we're looking at these tough things and go to the simple stuff. Plug it back in. Oh, wait. We're, I can't really wrap my head around it, but look at this. Oh, yeah. Think about God in his so immense and so big. We can't fit in that in that same definition. But how does God fit there? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's helpful. Is it kind of, um, how did God create Do you kind of think about how his immensity and his eternality? So like the possibilities, it's more like hypothetical because, like, because God's like forget like he's in all time, like he's not going through the timeline chronologically like we are, and he's over all of it. And so in one sense there, there can't be a true like he's already he's in every moment equally present, like mm -hmm. in the past in our in our past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. And so he's already like actively working and acting yeah. in each moment of time. Yeah. And so the possibilities is more it's it's more just Logically, how we would potentially mm -hmm. be a possibility versus like God actually yeah. there being a possibility of Him doing it differently. Yeah, there's no secondary dimension to where right. you know, this isn't a Marvel movie. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it, it's it, it's just a logical necessity that we think in this way. It's just the, the possibility or the mm -hmm. uh, the very secondary causes. Remember, God is the first cause of all things, of all creation. And in his creation and providence and in various mm -hmm. degrees, everything yeah. else is secondary causes. Everything else is built off of that. Right. Um, and God uses secondary causes uh, to bring about his intended uh, will within the world. Yeah, so um, it's like kind of what we talked about uh, two weeks ago with the simplicity of God and then also the uh, immutability of God. God is not affected by anything outside of himself. He doesn't respond to things at all. He, does, he doesn't really respond to things, but he has uh, decreed. So this maybe is a, way, a good way to help us think about things like when uh, in the book of Jonah, Jonah's prophesying, he says, in three days Nineveh will be overthrown, but then the people of Nineveh repent and are spared. And so... God had decreed the contingency that if they had not repented, then the city would have been overthrown. But at the same time, he decreed the actuality that they would repent and be spared. So that's where, that's where I'm mean, having trouble with terminology because there was no contingency. It was already decreed how it was going to be. Mm -hmm. He gave the option of saying that this is what would happen if it didn't. But yeah, it well, then that's all we're. That that's all we're. So I think the terminology is what I'm struggling with because mm -hmm. if you say 
possibilities, that means that implies that there is a possible secondary option versus what's already been decreed. What's already been decreed is what it is. It's going to be that way, which can be mm -hmm. frustrating when you know, man, yeah. I've already decided what I got to do. Perhaps, uh, you know, Catherine used the term hypothetical. Maybe that's a, an even better term than possibility. Yeah, I'll, I'll still bring it up to the same point, though. Yeah. If it's already decreed, possibilities and hypotheticals don't matter what's their purpose. Um, and this, there's, it's already determined. Because know? I think it just comes down to, again, it's yeah. just it's the matter of how logic yeah. works. It's, is if there is a choice, even if it's decreed, uh, mm -hmm. So, press or uh, what's another two things? Um, uh, Colgate, yeah. Colgate, press or Colgate, right? You know, I go with press. God determined I was going to go with press because that is what He decreed. But there's still the very real hypothetical uh, possibility that I would choose Colgate. But I didn't because it's all decreed. But still, there's that hypothetical thing. I guess it's more that's than how it's, it's the language yeah. from R to R. Yeah. yeah that's it's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, and it's it's in yeah. Right. So we're we're bound by space and time. God is not right. So the way we relate to things is through space and time. So I always try to because I'm an engineer. That's how I think of things. Right. Let's worry about creation. That's how that's how he relates to us. And that's how he has to relate to us because that's how he's created us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I, th I think just going back to like what's the purpose of talking about these things if they're not ultimately really possible, I think it's still instructive for us. And I think that's why God gives us examples like Nineveh and like other cases where he said what was going to happen, but then uh, it says, you know, he changed his mind or something, however different passages express it, that he did differently than what he had threatened. Um, it's instructive, even if it's not, you know, in a real sense possible that things could have gone a different way. Uh, and this is where, like I said earlier, we don't really have the capacity to fully conceive of, of all of the these things that are true about God. And we can tend to get ourselves into trouble if we really start trying to uh, surgically attack these things too much. Um, but I think we are past our time, so I'm going to ask um, Richard, can you pray for us, please? Our good time, Father Lord, um, how wonderful it is to contemplate the, uh, the more wonderful it is to be able to be instructed in those things and have our minds more fine-tuned to uh, understand uh, who you are, uh, to understand your will, uh, to understand how we should uh, re uh, respond to you and glorify you. We pray, Father, that you would allow us to continue to uh, have our iron sharpened uh, through this time. We would be able to use the knowledge that we've gained to glorify you, uh, to uh, better tell others about you, and uh, Father, we also want to thank you for uh, sparing uh, many of us through uh, this, this weather, we pray, Father, that you would 
allow us to uh, thank you for that and glorify you for that. We pray that you would bless the time we have uh, coming up, that you would uh, allow us to uh, worship you aright. 